Thank you for tuning in to Roll Call. The movie you selected is Six Degrees of Separation, starring Will Smith. Hey everyone, welcome to Roll Call, the show where two childless millennials gush over movies and follow an actor's journey from their early years throughout their blockbuster hit. Because, let's face it, in this hellscape, we're just chasing the power trip that you felt when you got to pick out a movie for the weekend. The simple things in life. The simple things in life. And you know what, Bria? I can't wait to get our Sydney Poitier on in this episode. Are we talking about Nancy Reagan again? Or... <laughs> yes. Throatus of the world. Um, mm-hmm. What's up, everybody? I'm Bria. And I don't want any part of this conspiracy. I mean, family? Wait, is family a conspiracy? I had a very interesting conversation. Hey, everyone. I'm Simone, by the way. <laughs> I appreciate the 1993 skepticism of making a movie adaptation about cats because (laughs) let me tell you, we should have taken notes back then before we lost ourselves in the black closed (laughs) vortex hole that is the cat's butthole that we're all trapped in and we can't get out of. Yes, Um, and shout out to the Ukraine because that just shows even more how much of a butthole we're in. We're stuck in a in a tainty swampy butt and it's not it's not been fun this week um so (laughs) if you don't know i mean you should know because the intro tells you i mean you selected this episode you should know by now in today's episode we're going to talk about will smith in the 1993 film six degrees separation so let's take a trip back So much was happening. I feel like 93 is like a hidden gem of pop culture. Like just chef's kiss. Like I might want to go back there. So let's get some sad stuff out of the way. Lisa Bonet and Lenny Kravitz split in 1993. And now that we know what has come of that relationship, the beauty that is Zoe Kravitz slaying it again as Catwoman. And Uh. I'm just like, (laughs) oh man. To live the life of a Bonet Kravitz Momoa person, like, I wish, like, to be born into that family. Yeah. How does it feel to be God's favorite? But (laughs) you know that you were, like, wrapped up as an angelic baby in the most, like, coziest, loose-knit scarf. Like, you know, like, instead of a... (laughs) <laughs> Instead of a baby blanket, they were probably like Lenny probably like took his really long scarf and was like, "I'm gonna wrap my baby in this." <laughs> I mean, there's there's just so much mag mad magic magic magic. There you also, go. Third like, third time half a charm. bottle of wine into this. Um, <laughs> there's just so much magic about the Kravitz. Bonet Momoa family that just mystifies me. Sadly, Jason Momoa and Lisa Bonet are no longer together. Mm. They're splitting up this year, 2022. But man, I mean, I can't wait to see what comes of their kids together. Um, But yeah, in other breakup news, we have Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder. (gasps) Oh, Winona Winona forever. forever. Yeah. And he's one almost similar to like Angelina Jolie 
he's got it he's got a winona tattoo yes he does it says wino now but yeah we all know what it once said so sure do who are you fooling johnny but but man such an interesting couple i didn't know a lot about this couple until hello teffy on tiktok word to her did a series on them but they too like our benefer were a couple of the tabloids in the media and too much media scrutiny kind of made them take separate journeys in life after this. But what an iconic 90s couple. Mm-hmm. Um, on TV, we have the, the premieres and the start of iconic shows like The X-Files, Frasier, The Nanny, um, mm. which... I watched Frasier during the pandemic, and I started The Nanny again, but I haven't finished. But we love Fran Fine, and her mm-hmm. outfits are just, like, the epitome of, like, 90s fashion. Yep. Just mini mm. skirt. Gives me shivers. The right. leopard print, the teased hair. Ugh, the tights. was great. The, the machino. The big earrings. Yeah. Chunky jewelry. Ugh. And then... um. On the black side of things, <laughs> happy Black History Month, um, black shows like Martin, um, The Fresh Prince, Living Single, as we talked about last episode, and Hanging Mr. Cooper were in full swing. They did not premiere in 93, but, you know, we got to get our we gotta get our grapes where we can pluck them from the vine. Mm-hmm. And a cultural classic, A Different World, was ending, which is a spinoff of The Cosby Show, if you don't know, mm. where... Denise, Lisa Bonet's character, went to college, and then that show wound up carrying on without her. But such an important po- point in African American pop culture because that that show showed uh, HBCU, a historically black college experience, and it encouraged a lot of black uh, youths to go to college and showed them what that would look like in a very positive, enlightened way. So props to that show for doing that. Samoa, I think you'll really like this. The first ever Got Milk commercial. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Can I guess who it was? Because it's always a celebrity, right? I actually or don't you're think not... this one was a celebrity. I saw, okay. I read what it was about, but I don't think it was a celebrity. I think it was okay. just kind of random. Okay, so it's different from, like, the Got Milk ads that we would see with the iconic, like, white milk stashes yeah, and then yeah, magazines. Yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Yeah. I for oh man now I want to relook up what um <laughs> this commercial was. I kind of thought about putting in a link to mm-hmm. see like what it was about. Um, okay, what was the first Got Milk commercial? Um, it featured a hapless historian played by Sean Whalen receiving a call to answer a radio station's ten thousand dollar trivia question, voiced by Rob Paulson. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? Referring to the Burr-Hamilton duel. So <laughs> it was kind of educational, I guess. Um, but as you stated, you know, it led to many iconic Got Milk commercials. Like the one we watched where the guy's in like the full body cast and he can't dip the cookie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he just has like a cookie shoved in his mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That lives in my head rent-free. Um, and so now we have some notable moments in hip-hop. 
Um, actually, this year, our topic of discussion, Will Smith, a.k.a. The Fresh Prince, and DJ Jazzy Jeff dropped their album, Code Red. Um, this wasn't, like, a huge album for, for them. Their next album, I think, would do better because of the song Summertime. But, um, you know, notable. Uh, and I can't wait to listen to his music and talk about that. Um, some notable songs of 93, Whoop. There it is. Whoop, there, there it is. is. Which in 2021 became, a, that's how you know you're getting older. It's like when songs <laughs> of your youth become like advertisement songs. And so that was like an ice cream commercial song. <laughs> Scoop, okay. there it is. Oh, no. You didn't see that one? I don't remember that one. But I know, I know the like sentiment that you mean of like, there were those memes after the Super Bowl commercial of like, oh, like as a kid, I always remembered my parents freaking out about the acts of the Super Bowl this year. And then I realized that it hit me that like, I am <laughs> the target audience. I'm the target audience. <laughs> yeah. Um, so whoop, there it is. Uh, great song. Great party anthem. Um, now a commercial jingle. Um, I Get Around by Tupac. I had to throw that in because I feel like that's just like a staple. Um, some notable albums that came out was um, Midnight Marauders by The Tribe Called Quest, which I love Tribe Called Quest. Um, Wu-Tang Clan, 36 Chambers, classic hip-hop album. Love that album. Puts me in my like New York, like, mm. especially when I wear Timbaland's, like just hits different. Um, Diggable Planets, a little different, a little jazzy, but their mm -hmm. album, A New Refutation of Time and Space, um, came out. Some popular songs from some lady rappers. Queen Latifah, also a rapper <laughs> slash actor slash singer. Um, mm -hmm. UNITY, which was like, a, it's just an amazing female rap song. Um, Salt and Peppa's album, Very Strictly Necessary, came out, which features the song What a Man, which, like, What a all... Man, What a Man, What yes. a Man. What a Man, What a Man, Yes. Um, <laughs> some notable R&B songs of 93, Can We Talk by Kevin, not Kevin, <laughs> Tevin Campbell. <laughs> I interchange. Um, I got it. I got it. <laughs> some notable 93 songs. Can We Talk by Tevin Campbell. Knocking the Boots by H-Town, which, you know, made a whole new slang term for sex, which is knocking the boots. Knocking um, boots. Another sad, long, another sad love song by Tony Braxton, one of my faves. Um, and then, of course, like you mentioned last episode janet jackson was just killing it in 93 um mm -hmm. she's on the cover of rolling stone the infamous this picture right here yeah i have on my closet door um of her with her husband holding her breasts and just um and she topped the charts in december of 93 so it's relevant i'm not just bringing this up because i'm a janet fan but it's relevant and um her song again for poetic justice which was nominated for an oscar was number one in december um and then the rest of the top 100 songs were 
all that she wants by Ace of Base. Oh, oh that I'm is a little baby. Here's another baby. <laughs> but yeah, I have to I have to bite my tongue so hard when we do this because every song I just want to sing. <laughs> and then we have Hero by Mariah Carey, who was again. <laughs> um so after Hero, we have number okay. four. <laughs> I do anything for love, but I won't do that by me. I can do anything for love, but I won't do that. Yes, yes. Um, and then we have Shoop by Salt and Pepper. Shoop, 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 shoop. All right. Well, I also thought that um, to try to figure out how to include black pop culture a bit in this for Will Smith that I talk about the covers of Ebony and Jet for whatever time we're talking about, which are black magazines. And so the cover of Ebony for December, 1993 was none other than Mr. Michael Jordan himself. At this point, I believe he retired for the first time from basketball. So, um, that makes complete sense. And then Jet Magazine has multiple issues throughout December. So we have a cover with Denzel Washington for the Pelican Brief, which totally makes sense. Whoopi Goldberg for Sister Act 2. And then Michael Jackson, which talks about um, his alleged addiction to painkillers and then the charges that were coming against him in 93 which also happened, I believe, 93 is the year he performed at the Super Bowl. So, very interesting uh, cover stories. Yes. Um, In the box office, overall that year, Jurassic Park was killing it. Came in, was the highest grossing movie of all time, until your favorite came in later and knocked it off its throne, Titanic. But 93 Jurassic Park was smashing as Nigel Thornberry would say (laughs) and then December of 93 the movies that came out with six degrees of separation six degrees of separation um Wayne's World 2 oh oh yeah (laughs) I mean I I I know they did. Obviously, I've, I've seen both of them, but for some reason, I feel like 93 would have been too early for a sequel. So I thought 93 was like when the first one came out. But so that that's no. why I had the they surprise. Were, oh, they were like, let's get this money, baby. Um, okay. Same okay. with Sister Act 2. So we've got two um, sequels back to back. The Pelican Brief, hence Denzel's cover issue of. Uh, Jet Magazine, which stars him and Julia Roberts. I've never seen The mm-hmm. Pelican Brief, but mm-hmm. very notable movie, it seems like. Um, Philadelphia, also Denzel Washington, but Tom Hanks, also, I believe that's his first Oscar movie. Okay. Before Forrest Gump. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have another notable Oscar movie, Schindler's List. Mm, yeah. And what's eating Gilbert Grape? And there were more movies in December of '93, but these were the ones I felt like were recognizable and notable. So those are some strong contenders. Yes. So, in contention of box office glory, how did Six Degrees of Separation do? 
Well, Bria, I got those numbers for you. Um, so this movie was released, like Bria said, in December 1993. This was released by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Films, directed by Fred Skepsi, uh, or Skep Skepizi, I think is how you say it. Um, I had to listen to like a couple of other people saying it out loud, but I think it's Skep Skepizi. Um this is based off of the uh, 1990 play of the same name, Six Degrees of Separation, written by John Guare, um, and was originally released on Broadway. It actually was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize winner as a play um, at the time. Um, the tagline for this movie is, for Paul, every person is a new door to a new world. Its budget was $12 million estimated. But opening weekend, Bria only grossed a mere $53,000. Wow, I was not expecting that. Yeah, and gross worldwide only like banked all together at about $6.5 estimated. Damn. <laughs> I was pretty surprised by these numbers myself. 22 mil, I mean, for a movie that's like, it was all filmed in Manhattan. Like, they kept the filming like even the scenes when they were in like the Sistine Chapel or whatever that was just a, a set obviously but like everything was filmed in Albany in New York or in Manhattan um and I'm a, a guessing that the most of the money is going to the cast for the film which we'll talk about because there were not a lot of big like chasing scenes or cars or explosions or things that might tend to eat up on budget so yeah hmm. i feel like such for such like a name recognizable movie that's like super surprising to me but you know sometimes the crowds and the fans aren't on the side of history sometimes you know things come out and then it's like after the fact that we're like wow that was great or that was a moment in pop culture and mm -hmm. all that that all that stuff well i'm curious what our man lil raj in the house of lil raj has to say about this if you don't know that is roger ebert himself <laughs> um bria remember before we started recording when i said i have a bomb to drop and tell you <laughs> <laughs> so kind of along the lines of how shocked you and I both were when we first heard about these budget numbers or like the total gross of this film, Roger Ebert did not review this. <laughs> really? There is no official Roger Ebert review for Six Degrees of Separation, which in the history, at least of this show, I've never come across a movie that has not been reviewed yet. Besides like Nurses on the Line, but yeah. But that had something, didn't it? Did it? I mean, it was a TV movie, so I thought it didn't. But he reviewed Made in America. Like... Yeah. <laughs> he reviewed Made in America. He reviewed My Family. Like, I just, I find, I find a lot of this very surprising because Six Degrees of Separation was adapted from a play that was very notable in New York. And the fact that the movie adaptation of that didn't have box office success. And apparently Roger Ebert was just like too busy to even review it. It's like kind of astonishing to me, but okay. 
He's like, sorry, I'm watching Gilbert Grape right now. I can't. <laughs> so actually, Wayne's World is calling. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne's World is calling. So I just fact-checked. He did not do a review of Nurses on the Line. So that was the last time. But because we combined Nurses in, on the Line with my family, mm -hmm. we still had some, like, gumption and stuff to talk about. So, Brea, what I have for you today is just <laughs> an article written. For, there's a Times... A New York Times article, but that just talks more about plot. Um, mm -hmm. And but the kind of main review I'm going to be reading is from Variety. Um, this was written by Leonard Claddy. Um, this was uh, released on November 30th, 1993. Um, the connection between any two people in the world, so we are told, in six degrees of separation, is no further than half a dozen human associations away. Popper or King and anywhere in between can be traced via no more than six intermediary sources. The trick, of course, is to find the right kind. Now, if you want, Bria, I can combine just the overall summary with a little bit of the review and just do a yeah, twofer for this one. Roll into right. it, baby. All right, let's go for it. So as I mentioned earlier, this movie is based off of a play of the same name. This play was on Broadway for a while. This was the first movie adaptation. I don't know about you, Bria, but for me, it's like when I watch this is very much still read and felt like a, I was watching a play that was cut. And it's really hard when you're making movie adaptations of a play for it to not feel like a play anymore and put you more in that like cinema realm. It's can be really tricky, but six degrees of separation means the connection between any two people. So we are told is in six degrees of intermediary sources. Scientific sociology aside, the screen version of John Guar's award-winning stage hit is an elaborate mousetrap where getting caught can be a delightful fun. But in the central scam dissipates into self-analysis and moralization. The more, it be the more serious it becomes, the more of a pedestrian path it takes and the tug of war between rational and absurd draws no victor. That won't matter to the sophisticated viewer, but poses serious commercial limitations for this classy entertainment. <laughs> the overall overview of this movie, if you will, is um, New Yorkers Louisa Kitteridge and John Flanders Flan Kitteridge um, are upper class private art dealers, pretentious but compassionate. Their prized possession is a double-sided Kadinsky. The one side represents control, the other chaos. They relay a story to their friends and acquaintances that becomes legendary over time. Their encounter with a young black stranger who came stumbling upon their front door one evening as they were courting Jeffrey Miller, an important investor who would make them wealthy beyond their dreams. The young man, Paul Poitier had just arrived at the city when he was mugged outside the building. He sported a minor knife wound to the abdomen. He was a friend of the Kitteridge's children, so he says, who are attending Harvard. But more importantly, he's the son of actor and director Sidney Poitier. Tomorrow, Paul is meeting up with his father, who is in town directing a movie adaptation of Beyond the attraction of taking Paul into getting the roles in the movie, Louisa, Flan, and Jeffrey all end up being captivated by Paul's charm, charisma, pedigree, and eloquence. After tending to his wounds, the Kitteridges invite him to stay the night. 
their encounter with him ends up being an all too familiar story that leads them on a search for him after he leaves their house the next morning. And that search, Louisa is particular, in particularly starts to critically study their lives and how much compassion they actually have. Is Paul Portier really who he says he is? You will just have to watch this clusterfuck of a movie. <laughs> clusterfuck. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, how many pumps of butter you would give six degrees of separation? For the cast and the, like, artsy interpretation, I would give this two and a half. I feel like acting wise the performances were phenomenal i could have seen them do equally successful if this was a film or if they were just on stage i feel like we're not going to see something like this kind of role or interpretation of a role from will until much later because his next several roles are going to be more comedic or action or just more along the lines of that like fresh prince style of acting that we tend to see so for for him to have so early of a switch and mindset and character this early on in his career i feel like is kind of going to be a nice little break so for that that's what that like half star comes from what about you um, I, I would give this two and a half as well. I think the half for me is more so that I feel like this is probably like a notable movie and performance for these actors. And I think it's just age wise that maybe it's just not like what it was at the time, you know, mm-hmm. like after I like while I was watching it, I had a lot of like. Okay, like, <laughs> like I might need to watch this twice, and then like very much so, I feel like I need to read about like what this movie is supposed to be about, and like the yeah. Well, it was inspired by, and I'm getting this from Wikipedia, but it was inspired by the real life story of someone named David Hampton mm-hmm. and his like retelling of this like whole like whoop de doo gotcha con artist story. Yeah, and I was just, at the end of it, I was just, and we'll get into this, but I was just, like, you know, very puzzled. So I was, like, I feel like this is a little above my head in some ways, and mm-hmm. and in a very, like, early 90s, like, tapering off from the 80s kind of way of, like, it's crazy to, and I think I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's crazy to watch movies where you see people, you know, riddling off like you know shakespeare or you know the catch from the rye yeah these notable authors and books and art and stuff like that and that kind of that kind of high class society and that doesn't really exist anymore like um you can be very rich but you could have absolutely no idea who kadinsky is like or you know so that era oh yeah of yuppie culture culture or upper east side like new york culture or whatever you want to call it wherever you're from but like that era of like i can quote poems by you know so and so or talk about art and plays and um composers and stuff like that like 
rich people don't really do that anymore. <laughs> so yeah, it was a very like idealized way of how this like image of how people believed that wealthy people acted. And I feel, I mean, I think to some degree, a lot of that has some validity when you think about like historically, if you were in upper class society, you were rubbing elbows with the quote unquote celebrities of the time, but the celebrities might not necessarily would have been like artists or Hollywood, but it was about like the steel mill people, like old money versus so like new Rockefeller, money, right? Rockefeller, yeah, okay. Guggenheim, all those people that if you were wealthy, that's what made you a celebrity. And then living in that high class society, like they valued this pip pip cheerio like yeah type of culture <laughs> yeah this idea of like i have to be the smartest person in the room kind yeah. of thing and just because you can quote catcher in the rye or quote shakespeare doesn't necessarily make you a good fucking person <laughs> <laughs> yes in many ways so i i feel like you know this movie is very settled into the 93 of it all and kind of i feel like it's very 80s in a lot of ways mm. but um i feel like yeah for this time and whatnot like i i understand why it's a pretty well-known notable fil film and you know again the cast of it all and all that kind of stuff like i i get it but i i do think that it's aged itself a bit at this mm -hmm. point in time mm -hmm. um so yeah two and a half for me um and so i think we should get into the movie and the cast and all that stuff let's do it um the cast is pretty star-studded in my opinion um, oh yeah obviously we're talking about will smith this is his first like kind of big serious film role he um, was i think second build next to stockard channing in this one really wow yeah like before donald sutherland wow um but yeah so will smith and then you have stockard channing who plays wisa which is like a riff off of Louisa? Yeah, and... I said Louisa, but that just helps me pronounce her name by putting the L before him. Yeah. So please, I'm sorry. It's, it's very Louisa. like, it's very bougie to be like, oh, it's Louisa. Friends, it's Louisa. Louisa. <laughs> um, but Stalker Channing, who I know and love as Rizzo from Greece, and I'm sure most people do, um, I also know and love her as the brief character in First Wives Club. And this has actually kind of made me interested in her career because for someone kind of semi-iconic, I would say, she hasn't had the most successful movie career. Um, and then we have Mr. Donald Sutherland, Kifa's daddy. Um, <laughs> Saint you with Kifa. <laughs> <laughs> for mom fans out there. Um, but yeah, Donald Sutherland... Um, kind of at a head of you know another family that ventured of nepotism just totally as, just as is is um what's his face martin sheen and such and is he in succession i feel like he is but this Donald reminded Sutherland? me yeah his character reminded me of 
the show Succession, which I kind of just started. But, I mean, he was in Hunger Games as of yeah. not too long ago and stuff like that. So, I mean, just a uh, actor's actor. And um, we have Sir Ian McKellen, Gandalf himself, all kinds of other notable roles. But he plays a friend of um, this couple named Jeffrey. And then we have some interesting kind of camp not even cameos really but smaller roles because they're not as central to the plot but anthony michael hall um who we all know from brat pack glory from you know breakfast club 16 candles weird science you name it um also in edward scissorhands and speaking of uh winona Ryder and johnny depp (laughs) yes uh, he plays trent who is um, who winds up being Paul's kind of lover and like his kind of gateway to this Upper East Side society? Um, we have a young, young Heather Graham. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! Like what a what a moment to see her. And then we have J.J. Abrams. Yeah. Which I still don't know exactly who he was in this, but like reading he about was- it. The son of the doctor who was like, are you fucking kidding me? Do you know why mom divorced you? Because she said it was like having sex with a salad without the dressing. (laughs) That was him. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. Yes. So, J.J. Abrams is in this (laughs) fucking movie. And um, I also noticed, what's his name? Um, I don't, I think, okay, I think it's Oz Perkins who plays Woody. Mm. But mm-hmm. I noticed him because he's, like, that kind of weird guy in Legally Blonde. Who's yeah. Like kind he kind of plays the quiet nerd in a lot yeah. of movies. I think um. he was in Dude, Where's My Car? There's also Anthony Rapp, who, from for our Broadway or fans out there, he, like, wrote and produced Rent and was also in the movie adaptation of Rent, but starred in oh, Rent in Broadway Zaps. for a long time. Zaps. He's kind of like, I don't know, the Lin-Manuel Miranda of the 90s, I like to say. I mean, even um, Richard Masser, Dr. Fine, who played the doctor to J.J. Mm-hmm. Abrams. Um, he was in a son. bunch of shit. Yeah, he looks really familiar. Just a silver bearded daddy. <laughs> At least on IMDb right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he was in My Girl, Risky Business, all yes. kinds of stuff. Um, yeah. But a pretty, pretty really solid cast i feel like Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so do you want to talk about some of these performances from these actors and characters yeah let's go let's get into it well i just want to say that i learned that stalker channing originated wisa on broadway or whatever uh, in new york in the play format Mm -hmm. and so she did that in new york and in london at one point and it was um, a point of contention that if this was ever made into a movie, that she reprised that role. So, I mean, kudos to her for being able to, like, start it off and kind of end it in a way of, like, putting it on film so that, you know, everybody could see it forever if they wanted to. And then... Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't know either, too. That's why I'm really kind of interested in her career, that, like, she had more success in theater than in movies. So the fact that she started off in this 
play version and then did the film like isn't really a surprise but um also she got nominated for an oscar for her portrayal and a golden globe yes yes and a golden globe for her portrayal as weeza in six degrees um but yeah anything else about stockard channing i i thought she was just so fabulous i mean she's like that yuppie bitch that you kind of love to it's kind of like watching a real housewives you know like they're so ridiculous that it's like oh my god (laughs) i know and it's just like you watch someone like that and you're like how you're such a hot mess like what is happening here (laughs) but like you know just how she managed that character. I read that too, that she also had done that character on stage and reprised it for the movie. But I think that kind of helped make it feel like she just did that character so naturally yeah, that it felt like, oh my God, I'm, she's not pretending to be a character. Like she's some, she's pretending to be someone who like we exists like yeah that 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 like total stereotype of what we were saying in the in earlier about like what a fucking like yuppie yup 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 <laughs> that actually exists out there and name drops artists and um you know rubbing elbows with rich people and stuff and just like gushing and lushing over knowing people in the who's who and having um hands in every honey pot so i i just i just adored her so much i i thought that this character was really great yeah it was interesting i found a charlie rose interview of her and donald sutherland kind of around this time um talking about these roles and it was interesting to hear her like talk about this role reprising it the success of it and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And she seemed pretty humble to me about like the success of six degrees and, you know, the recognition she was getting for this role because she's, you know, they're like, Oh, you know, this is, you know, really doing well. You think this is going to change like, you know, upturn in your career or something. And she's like, Hey, I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. everything's kind of a cycle. And, like, when you're at the end of the cycle, you kind of don't know what, like, you know, the next one's going to look like. But, you know, I can only do what I do. And that's that. But I don't know. I just, I walked away from this. Like, I love Rizzo and Grease, but I walked away from this. Like, very intrigued about Stockard herself. And then Donald Sutherland's Charlie Rose interview was very interesting as well. He talked a lot about, the relationship between actor and director and yeah this you know kind of release and sexual kind of thing that acting does for him and i don't want to say that like that's weird but just the way he chose to describe it 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 was like this you know build up and this you know trying to please the director and less so the audience of i'm trying to give the director what he sees in his vision and then you know if the audience likes it or not that's really on kind of the director because that's his vision so i'm just trying to deliver what i can but the excitement or the the high price of it all (laughs) really that's what he loves about acting and you know him foreseeing that he would do this for the rest of his life and stuff like that i thought his portrayal as flan which i thought was an interesting name but Mm -hmm. and too 
Wisa. I think these names are very like Upper East Side. Like, oh, just call me Wisa or just call me yes instead of Flanders. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought I thought it was really spot on and interesting. And I don't know. I feel like they were both just kind of like kind of made to play these characters in a way. Mm -hmm. I don't see this as a real stretch for them. But again, I don't know like the trajectory of their career i know they've done tons of other stuff but like you know they just seem to like really understand the assignment for me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah i think i i would agree with what you said that this character seemed similar to what i said about stockard is that it just felt natural and i don't want that to sound like a dig or a dish or anything about them but yeah just these characters are almost like stereotypical characters that you might see in like this like over the top way of acting with my drink in my hand and talking about this story about this crazy incident we had the other night and that we had a visitor into our home don't you like it's almost our throats throats. it kind of split our throats we could have been murdered um (laughs) i just it's kind I of very like... clueish. <laughs> no, That's what I said in my notes, Bria. Watching this movie really reminded me of watching the movie version of Clue, starring Tim K- Tim Curry, and that movie's so fucking phenomenal. Yeah, but I wa- I like watched this and was like, this is very comical in the way that Clue is comical because the characters are like. These like very over the top actors yeah. reminds me of a lot of like kind of like improv characters that you would see in SNL that I don't know. Uh, so so Donald Sutherland, in, especially in the like, like you said, in Hunger Games, like the last kind of thing that we'd seen him in movie wise has been this like asshole villain. <laughs> and so he's like still kind of an asshole in this movie. Yeah. He's a bougie little asshole, but kind of like a, a fool, like a dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I thought it was great. Oh, and um I learned that Donald Sutherland was not like the first choice or anything. Michael Douglas actually was I can see that possibly um gonna be in this role and I guess he turned it down or whatever, but this was a role that Donald Sutherland did not like necessarily gravitate towards. He had to read it a couple times and kind of be like, oh, okay, maybe. Like, mm-hmm. and in his Charlie Rhodes interview, he kind of talks a, a good amount about, you know, coming into agreeing to play a role and, you know, feeling it out and that sort of relationship between like reading a script and deciding you want to do something and understanding the character and all that kind of stuff so i thought that Mm -hmm. was interesting sir ian mckellen um (laughs) he plays jeffrey a south african businessman very wealthy who you know these two this couple wants two million two million dollars two million dollars from and um I mean, Ian McKellen is just, you know. He's fabulous. Yes. Always. <laughs> I mean, his his role is kind of small in the way that it actually didn't. He was part of the plot when Will Smith's character, Paul, walks in and meets Weeza and Flan. And he was, so Weeza and Flan were kind of like whining and dining him before taking him out to dinner to like seal a deal on this $2 million art dealership Suzanne business deal. Painting. 
And that's when Paul's character enters in. And Paul also ends up charming Joff or Jeffrey, um, especially once they all know, like, or think that Paul is really the son of Sidney Poitier. And he talks about, you know, oh, maybe we can have you in our film. And if I tell the right people. And then the next morning, Jeffrey calls back and tells Weeza and Flan, like, all right, I'm in. And additionally, like, let's have like a black film festival. And he starts like pulling all of these like people of the time. And it felt very like a white expository of like the black experience. now and totally totally like, a judge we're gonna again like write on the backs of these people and like we're the ones who's gonna reap the benefits which is like very politically and socially commentary which definitely the play in this movie has those like overlays of um but uh, you know ian mckellen's character doesn't really like progress too much in the intertwineness of the plot as it later goes through but it would have been fun to see more of him because he's just so damn cute yeah and then um just kind of as a grouping the kids and heather graham who is a part of a couple that paul also kind of dupes um i just thought they were pretty like standard nothing Mm -hmm. too standout-ish um i did think that a lot of their dialogue was like kind of crazy absurd (laughs) like Like the pink shirt yes if I may, and... Bria. <laughs> if I may. Um, I feel like this is going to be your Gili of This Wilson. is it. <laughs> well, this was originally going to be my opening line, but Bria, you gave him my pink shirt? You gave a complete stranger my pink shirt? That shirt was a Christmas present from you. I treasured that shirt. I love that shirt. My color has grown a full size from weightlifting. You saw that my arms had grown and you saw that my neck had grown and you bought me that shirt for my new body. I love that shirt. My first shirt for my new body and you gave that shirt away? Can't believe you. I hate this life and I hate you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, stuff like that <laughs> where, you know, they tell their kids they're trying to figure out, like, do you know this Paul? Like, who is he? Maybe, like, he was a former classmate of yours. Like, there has to be a reason why he knows so much about you enough to convince us that you knew him. And <laughs> their reactions just were ran the gamut, but were just so over the top that, like, that's where... For me, like this movie kind of not went left, but I was just like, like in a corkscrew on a roller coaster, just like, oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> like, to me, isn't... it was very, it read very much like these very privileged teens are trying to like turn against and go in this like counterculture of what their parents raised them in, and this is their way of rebelling. Like J.J. Abrams' character as Doug is in this, is in his like, college dorm at harvard he has a pot plant growing behind him he has like a marley poster or like some kind of like rise up or rise against poster in his room and he's like cursing and screaming at his dad um wiza and flan's kids that's not the son no one of the sons was the pink shirt yeah and then the other two were just like man you you guys are being so annoying oh my gosh mom i'm gonna go like off to afghanistan i'm gonna get married and her mom's like okay bye like i need to get (laughs) i'm talking with paul right now leave me alone so 
her the kids in this movie were like both with their parents and against their parents but yeah it was very much i don't know a lot of it felt like like "Eh, i'm gonna reap the benefits of the monetary like pocket that or the monetary benefits that you're like stuffing into my pocket right now and like putting me through school but meh i'm gonna be like "Hmm, a rebel and i'm gonna like go against your will and do what i want to do which is like my opening line which is her daughter it's like i will not be a part of this conspiracy and uh flan is like it's not a conspiracy it's a family and it's just like oh it's family a conspiracy (laughs) (laughs) it it kind of too shows the dichotomy of like where what the parents are dealing with and like the kids being like nah like i don't want to be a part of your like shenanigans like i'm trying to figure myself out and they're like we're a family damn it like you need to be helpful in a part of this <laughs> um but yeah okay so that's the cast for the most part um any <laughs> other <laughs> any other notable performances or you know i think there were some cameos by some of the original cast members from the play mm. um i write about it i don't have notes on them offhand sorry but you know just know that the play people were semi a part of this um <laughs> and let's get into mr willard smith the second let's do as it paul potier um for me my overall notes i have like three points um were you know considering his acting on the fresh prince of bel-air this is a smart role to take, you know, in order to show potential range and to garner future consideration for more serious opportunities. Um, and then kind of similar to Jennifer Lopez early in her career, you know, this it's just super smart to be amongst some really notable actors like Stocker Channing and Donald Sutherland and Ian McKellen and even Anthony Michael Hall um, and J.J. Abrams and Heather Graham. Um, but, you know, this cast is pretty solid. It's not, like, random-ass, like, I don't know, half these people kind of cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did find that his character kind of... I don't think it was, like, a huge stretch character-wise because he's very charming and I don't find that much different from Will himself mm-hmm. um, because Will is very much a people pleaser and, you know, wants to put on the best, you know, best face or front forward that he can for the public. Um, but the opportunities to take the character a bit further, like him being homosexual or him be having been on the streets and mm-hmm. not from this life and you know kind of i don't know making up this con of sorts like they seemed very surface level you know they seemed mm-hmm. very after thoughts to me at least like so um you know the flashbacks with him and anthony michael hall um I feel like he seemed more street savvy in Where the Day Takes You than in this movie. And I feel like that should have carried over well, I feel like. Like, in Where the Day Takes You, I had no questions that, like, 
oh, that's Will Smith playing a homeless dude. I was like, no, that's Will Smith as a homeless dude, you know? And this one, I feel like I didn't quite believe that he was, like, this street kid who, like, you know, came up on a way to kind of con these rich people out of kindness, really, because he didn't really take much from them, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's obviously I think it paid off in his career, but surprisingly, I don't think it's like that big of a like. Oh my god! Like, no, I agree too. I don't feel like it's a stretch considering that we're going to see similar dramatic roles or even like more heartfelt, like gut wrenching stuff later on. Um, but this movie definitely it feels in addition to his character so far, I mean, if we're just comparing it against like Fresh Prince, Made in America, and Where the Day Takes You, is so far anything that Will has done. And so trajectory-wise, if you're thinking about his film career, people may not even have known that he was in Made in America or may not have even watched Where the Day Takes You, right? And they just know him from Fresh Prince. And so they see someone from Fresh Prince acting the way that he is in Six Degrees that it might make the movie go or go like, huh, that's interesting. It's not necessarily a stretch, but it's definitely very different. And it goes against what a lot of people might have like pigeonholed it or expected of him to be um, for him to like maintain pretty much this Paul Poitier persona throughout the rest of the movie and not feel like he has to like code switch too much or like now I'm gonna go back to like streetwise will and like talk a little bit different and be a little bit more like funny and charismatic but that it's it's interesting because his humor charisma sexual attractiveness flirtation is still there but it's executed in like a lot of in a much different way. And I know that his kiss with Michael C. Hall is not a real kiss. It's done with like camera tricks to make their faces look like they were kissing and they added in a song and, or a sound of a kiss. And Will supposedly, this is like the IMDB fact, but Will supposedly got that advice from Denzel Washington when he took this role and he had said like ah oh, you don't you might not want to kiss a man on a screen cuz that might like damage your career or it might typecast you or you might not land more roles and Will took that advice and he kind of like refused to do the actual kissing but later on like really regretted it he's like i feel like i should have been able to do that and like have the i don't know if you want to call it courage but just like yeah to feel safe in myself at that point in my time to be able to like go through with something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think hindsight, like we can all agree with his newfound, like, you know what, maybe I should have did that. Like maybe I should have more courage or I should just, you know, been more mature enough to be like, I'm not gay. I'm playing a character and this is true to him and I can do Mm -hmm. this and it not reflect on me. But I think in the 90s of it all, like, when you think back, you know, we weren't as progressive as we are now. We weren't as mm-hmm. open as we are now. Absolutely. And, you know, AIDS was at its height. Mm-hmm. So even to this day, Will, you know, faces 
um, rumors of him being homosexual. So, I mean, <laughs> it it helped him in some ways, but like he still didn't really escape that criticism in other ways. Yeah, so. and that's something that I learned after watching this and doing research, because um, there aren't a lot of or not really any interviews that I could find one-on-one interviews around this time more have to do with like his music and fresh Prince. Um, And so I can see the like still very present homophobia of the 1990s to be like, I'm like scared to like take on this kind of role because I don't want someone to like think of me like this. um, Yeah. and the hesitation to want to tackle a role like that. Uh, the 90s. <laughs> we love them, but, like, you know, they're not perfect either. No. Um, <laughs> on that note, I, I do want to talk about, because when you do look up Will Smith, Six Degrees of Separation, you see a lot of, because of his memoir, um, him talking about his venture into method acting for Mm -hmm. this role and how much he committed himself to being Paul Potier that at the time his new wife Cherie you know she had married Will Smith but at that time because he was so into character that you know she agreed to marry Will not Paul Potier and then at some point that he was so in love and infatuated with Stockhart Channing yeah I read that too of the character and then he realized he was like yeah method acting not for me i can't do it not going to be happening again which i thought was interesting because you rarely hear that side of method acting i feel like you usually hear like you know the joaquin phoenixes the daniel day lewis's the jared leto's who are like super like oh they lived as these characters and they got really the Heath Ledger is really into it and you know it kind of messed with them or something but you never hear people who are like yeah I tried that shit and no I can't do that (laughs) like that's dangerous (laughs) yeah and I thought that was interesting for him to talk about that totally I read the similar or read similar interviews and also like watched some like YouTube channels and stuff talk about it that hit in his preparation for this role that he tried to be so immersed in his character that he kind of like really started falling for stalker like of course like YouTube chat or YouTube channels and tabloids and stuff will twist the words of like, Will Smith falls in love with his co-star, blah, blah, blah. And they might like twist the words around a little bit. But I think that that's something really to be noted that like, that not a lot of people do talk about of, this is why method acting isn't for me because it takes me out of my own reality. And it, it crosses this strange boundary that I'm sure so many actors and actresses struggle with about falling in love or being hateful towards someone. I mean, I understand why they pay them the big bucks and all that, but it's (laughs) like, I I can't, as someone who like is already so empathetic and sensitive (laughs) that I feel like my own problem is that I'm constantly soaking up the emotions of other people that I can't, I can't imagine to do that professionally. Right. I mean, thinking about that made me think about like, you know, to care about things outside of you a lot of time 
we don't think about how much that takes of each other to like actually give each other even if it's like happy if it's sad if it's just like just to be like oh my god congrats like to care about someone enough to be like i'm gonna take enough of my energy to be like i'm excited for you even though this has absolutely no effect on me whatsoever Mm -hmm. but i love you enough to be excited about this like we don't think about that a lot i feel like so so in and i I don't know how i got here but well it's this idea of like energy matching right yeah and like you and then and as actors having to like match the energy of the characters that they're right, emulating okay, yes. and, and trying to bring. Yeah. Which goes back to, so one thing about Stalker Channing and Donald Sutherland is because Stalker played this character on Broadway during her Charlie Rose interview. A lot of it was about like, oh, how is it different from, you know, doing it on Broadway or did that help you or, you know, did that hinder you? And she said that, you know, she kind of had to start like fresh and it felt like a new marriage of sorts because with Donald Sutherland, he didn't see the play. He didn't know anything that pre-existed. So he's starting from this new foundation and for her having already have this past with this body of work, she had to get rid of that and start new with him and then meet him where Mm -hmm. he was at and, you know, figure that out. And I thought that was really interesting because that's kind of rare to have an actress play a character prior and then kind of reprise or continue that character, but with someone new and in this larger, bigger format. But yeah, like the energy of it all is just like so, so much, so much. Yeah. <laughs> so risk wise, I mean, we kind of said that we didn't, I mean, I think this was risky for well. I don't want to downplay like him playing For one, he kind of played a Carlton. Um, Yeah, totally. He's he's pretending to be this Harvard student, this well-educated student. He talks about this thesis and the catcher of the rye and all Mm -hmm. this stuff. Um, He is very preppy looking, you know, when he comes in. Um, He's not, you know, as hip hop as he is on Fresh Prince or just in life at that time. Um, but I don't want to downplay that it's, it was a stretch for him at that time, but knowing where he winds up, I think, you know, you're like, oh, you know, that was, that was nice. Like that was, um, a great effort for him at the time, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I think knowing his potential and what comes later, you're like. This is like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So it's interesting you say that. I kind of had some reflection after I watched this and then I thought more about it this morning. And maybe it's because with Jennifer Lopez, I had known, you know, 90s and mid-aughts rom-coms. I knew enough. Um, I knew Boy Next Door. I knew Selena, obviously. But the like fillers and shit in between were just were a new venture for me, especially the music. And I know for Will Smith, the music piece is also going to be a new venture for me, at least in the early years. But because I I definitely have like Will Smith cassettes and CDs from the 90s or owned them at one point or Leah Bad Bitch Gold Pink Razor had one had them. (laughs) 
So that's my like six degrees of <laughs> anyways. Um, but there was a lot kind of going into it with Jennifer Lopez that I watched for the first time. Now, Will Smith, and not saying that I've seen every single movie, but I've seen a good majority of the movies that we're going to be watching this season. And it almost feels like a mini spoiler alert of like the potential that's to come. And so yeah. when I watched this movie, I dare I say, Bria, felt a little reminiscent of Steve Sodenberg's out of sight in terms of like performances for Jennifer being this like early role before the rom-coms. This is like in between Money Train and Meet in Manhattan that we're just like, okay, Jennifer. And yeah. that we, a lot of people, movie critics especially, really kind of like uh -huh. always refer, <laughs> they always refer back to it. And I watched a couple other YouTube channels talking about just this movie in particular and one of them was called rabbit hole media which you know goes with our show the imdb IMDb. <laughs> imdb rabbit hole baby and that that channel had said like this is a sleeper hold movie of will smith that a lot of people tend to forget but shouldn't because of this like nuanced character character that we're not necessarily going to see in later performances yeah i really equate this with u-turn <laughs> because yes okay okay because, okay like, okay i feel like we the quirkiness really yeah yeah like i feel like yeah. we really enjoyed out of sight it held up well you know it's a movie i will gladly rewatch and tell people about and i feel like u-turn and six degrees are movies that i'm like these are really interesting roles for these actors to have taken on mm -hmm. and they're very interesting ways of storytelling but they're not necessarily the most relatable still or they don't hold up quite as much like there's something there for sure but it's like not quite like where like oh, yeah like it's not like a selena or, you know, where it's like, oh, man, like, you understand why this person went on to do what they did. Like, mm -hmm. and I, I mean, and not to say that, yeah, you do in this movie, like, you understand why Will Smith went on to do what he was able to co accomplish outside of the Fresh Prince, especially in terms of, like, this character being so different. But at the same time, it's just like, this could have easily been, like, career kryptonite for him in some ways where like mm -hmm. like Denzel Wa Washington warned him like hey I don't know if you want to be kissing the dude on in the films right now might not might not be the best move long term in 93 yeah now someone would be rewarded for that but yeah 1993 it was like especially black media like, I don't mm -hmm. know about that Will Smith kiss that white dude in that movie. Like, mm -hmm. Fresh Prince. <laughs> fresh Prince. <laughs> <laughs> and I just did, like, that, the wrist hand movements. <laughs> that's why I think, though, that this character or this movie was a bit of a risk. I think it was a smart risk that he took because, yeah. you know, having 
play along the likes of some very well-established people of both stage and film was cool. And being playing something that was just a little bit different, I think offered viewers a range that we yeah. hadn't seen yet. And I don't think, I mean, and we know that this movie didn't like gross very high. I'm not necessarily sure why compared maybe against to like Gilbert Grape or some of the other things that were being released that year or that's December, January can also sometimes be like the Oscar buzz month when like the big yeah, production movies come Stockard out. Which got a nominee for, so. She, yes, absolutely. And that surprises me. So for someone who, maybe it's because I'm thinking in 1993 money that like 53 mil opening weekend, but 6.5 mil estimated for total growth seems low probably because movies nowadays like Avengers will gross like several hundred million close to a billion of box office growth and hits. Yeah. So yeah, that also kind of puzzles me with Stockard at least getting both Golden Globe and an Oscar nomination. You would think that maybe more people would know of this movie, but apparently this is like one of, I guess it makes sense when you think about like Bad Boys, Men in Black, Wild Wild West, Hitch, Seven Pounds, and later for Will Smith, Pursuit of Happiness, right? Like, yeah. he will get his Oscar moments, but for now, that this is kind of like the early buzz of, like, he had potential back then. Yeah. I think, too, that this movie probably didn't do that well because, I mean, this year, the big huge movie was Jurassic Park so oh yeah I mean when you when I think like I said earlier like this movie is very like on the tail ends of the 80s like yuppie culture and you know this like bourgeois sensibility I feel like too because it was a play like it's going to interest certain people but not everybody you know Mm -hmm. so I'm sure certain people we're like, oh my god, they made that hit Broadway play, a movie. Let's go see it. <laughs> but certain people were probably like, yeah, let's go see Wayne's World too, like or Sister Act too, <laughs> like. So we're like, Will Smith's in that. Now nah, let's go see Whoopi, like and Lauren Hill, <laughs> like. So I mean, the success of the movie. It surprised me, but I also feel like I kind of understand it. But at the same time, I think the critical acclaim of the movie makes sense. It's one of those darlings of like, this was a play adapted to a movie and there's these outstanding performances and it has, you know, these great monologues. That's too a part about Will Smith's character that I feel like was one of the best parts of showing him growing as an actor is like, he has these crazy long winded conversations with these characters, you know, trying to sell himself to them as Paul Potier as this, you know, Harvard student who lost his thesis in a mugging talking about the catcher in the rye or his ideas on life and whatnot. And that's hard. Like, he wasn't monologuing on The Fresh Prince. He wasn't monologuing in Made in America or Where the Day Yeah. So, like, Agreed. that... A lot of monologuing. Yeah, that part of this movie, I think, is exceptional in terms of, like, his ability and growth and um even stalker channing you 
you know, says like, you know, he worked really hard. So, you know, I wasn't that surprised or like, you know, that bewildered, like of him being able to pull this off. But, um, but yeah, like, uh, this, I feel like I have to watch this movie again. (laughs) Like, it's just one of those movies that like you watch Mm -hmm. and you're like, huh, I don't quite get it, but like, maybe yeah (laughs) like i wonder too if a lot of that's just with the film adaptation of making a play into a movie and if it if this would make more sense if you just watched it with like a one room view of a stage of the people telling their story and then it like transitions back and forward in time but i think some of that unfortunately gets lost with the film piece like there were a lot of like fever dreams when weeza and flan would kind of go into their like monologues and talking about being duped and what art means to them or I had the strangest dream about cats and like you know Louisa's completely like she's sitting on a bed just like surrounded by cats and she's not making this connection that like people are gonna be playing cats in the cats movie. <laughs> she's just like they're training real cats to be in the cats movie so that piece like there's some really kind of strange bizarre elements but you know bria ever since you said u-turn that's actually a better analogy when i when i made the comparison with like out of sight versus this it was just more along the lines of like Career, pivotal like highlights yeah yes and i don't think this is going to be referred a lot back to which is unfortunate although i don't know i haven't read all of the little little raj <laughs> reviews yet but we'll every Every time, almost like 90% of the time, we would read a review with Jennifer Lopez. They would always fucking talk about Out of Sight. All the way up until Hustlers. is like, yes. ever since her pivotal turn in Out of Sight. Even in the, like, article, the People Magazine article with with Marry Me. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like all the way up to the top. We can't let J-Lo go, so if that's a problem, (laughs) we need to tune out. She's going to be our point of reference because it's our first season. So yeah, I think yeah. even like 10 seasons into this. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to point out some like great, interesting quotes from this movie that mm-hmm. I thought were interesting. Um, so there's a quote. <laughs> I tried to pull these and remember who said for what. Rich people can do something. Oh, I think Weeza said this. Rich people can do something for you, even if you're not sure what it is you want them to do. And I was like, bet. Rich people have power. Like, they have power. They have connections. And even if it's the smallest thing for someone who's not in their position, it could very well change their life or the trajectory of, you know, their day-to-day or whatever it is you want to talk about. But, you know, I found that profound. And then, of course, the iconic quote about, you know, six degrees of separation, which only went to live on to six degrees of Kevin Beckett. But Wisa is talking to her daughter and they're kind of going about this whole situation and whatnot. But, you know, she's like, I read somewhere that everybody on this planet is separated by only six other people. Six degrees of separation between us and everyone else on this planet. The President of the United States, a gondolier in Venice, just fill in the names. 
I find it extremely comforting that we're so close. I also find it like Chinese water torture that we're so close because you have to find the right six people to make the right connection. I am bound, you are bound, to everyone on this planet by a trail of six people. And I know about Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, but hearing this in this movie, I was just like, damn, that's kind of deep. Like, And the part that stood out for me was really like finding the right six people to make the right connection. Yeah, that really meant that like messed with my mind a little bit so i want to hear like why that stuck out to you first well it stuck out to me because i feel like whenever you may have like ambition or goals or you know that people are always like oh well why don't you try this or like why don't like today i saw a tweet that was like you know black people if you don't want to be a director or writer or whatever we still need representation in film in other areas like set dressing or location scouting and stuff like that, like stuff that doesn't get as hyped as being a director or a writer or something like that. And so I was looking through those tweets and people are like, yeah, we do need representation in that, but like you have to know people to be able to find those jobs like and it's not a career tract that's easily identifiable like okay i just have to go to this school and do this and then get an internship doing this and do this like it's very much a who you know type of thing and i feel like that in a lot of ways of even things i'm interested in like you know it it's who you know really more so than like sometimes even what you're capable of honestly that's exactly what i was thinking too it's that part when she said it's just you have to find the right six people and i felt like that was a little bit of a commentary on that like privilege piece and prejudice Mm -hmm. piece of like you can find someone that you're connected with with another other people but like do you want to be associated with them yes or no if not like find someone else that you're going to be connected with. And it's like more so about the like preferred six people that you would like to have within Mm. your like social circle of who you're connected with. And I kind of relate that back to when Paul's character, when Will Smith's character, Paul reveals at this dinner party that he crashed with Lisa, Flan and Jeffrey that he's Sidney Poitier's son and kind of like distant son um and not very well explained or not well known of son yeah yeah. and that it wasn't until he mentioned that he was a kid of someone famous that they were like yeah. oh that yeah. that's what that's what got them so excited and then obviously this potential of like being in the cats movie because later you know <laughs> the irony the next of that <laughs> the, the fucking irony of that so um uh, that later that day, Lisa and Flan go to like a wedding of a family friend and they like regale the group or whoever will listen of like this crazy event that happened the night before. And then they go out to lunch a couple days later with some friends and then their friends are like, we have a crazy story to tell you. And it's the same exact thing that happened to them when they start to connect these pieces that Paul is maybe not paul after all and he's a con artist and so 
you know, but anyways, it's like just finding the right people just really kind of got me back to this whole political and social commentary of people wanting to only be associated with the people that they think are going to advance them in society or somehow do better by them. Yeah, which also goes to like the quote, and I didn't save this quote, but it's a quote about like imagination and how that's really the gateway to reality. And to some degree, if you think about it, we're all kind of faking it and trying to be what we think is acceptable or admirable or, you know, cool in Mm -hmm. the simplest terms of it. And I think that I think that Paul has determined a way to fit in with these people who have the things that he wants and He's, again, just faking the funk to, Mm -hmm. you know, this is what you want to hear. You want to hear that I'm Harvard educated and I know your kids and I have this thesis and I'm really Mm -hmm. smart and I know about the catcher in the rye and I know about this and that I'm Sidney Poitier's son. But, like, you know, I have this estranged relationship with my dad because I think that there's always, like, this twist. Look at their kids, you know, where they're like, oh, like, he gave away my pink shirt. Like, you know, there's always this twist of, like, yes, I'm from this, but, like, oh, like, I have endured, too. You know, rich people mm-hmm. can't be happy with being rich and, like, well <laughs> Like, they also, they also have problems. I don't want to, like, ignore their problems, but I do think a lot of their problems are, like, in vain of, like, oh, I have so much. Like, I need, I need like, something to bring me down from this in some ways. Um, but also, too, I think, like you said, he didn't come, he didn't become, like, kind of notable to them until he was, like, this famous person's child, which goes with the quote, that I saved towards the end of the movie where he's calling and they're trying to, they've gone to the police and whatnot and they're trying to like, you know, find him and catch him. But he calls them and eventually he's like, you know, I'll be treated with care if you take me to the police. If they don't Mm -hmm. know you're special, they kill you. And then Lisa says, oh, I don't think they kill you. And then Paul says, Mrs. Lisa Kitteridge, I am black. And then Lisa says, I will deliver you to them with kindness and affection. And then eventually you see this montage where the police are arresting him and they pull up and they're like, oh, no, like we have to go with him. We said we'd go with him and stuff. But... I feel like that's so poignant still because given all that we've endured with Black Lives Matter and even before that, just this idea of that, you know, if you're black in America and with police that, you know, first off, they see you as a threat versus like a person. And it's Mm -hmm. not until that you've gotten some humanity. And it's weird because I believe that today is the anniversary of Trayvon Martin's death. So it's like very full circle. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, until someone has humanized you, you know, it's just like, oh, well, the police shot this thug or this criminal. And it's like, Mm -hmm. nah, this kid was 13 and he was minding his business. Or, 
you know, this man was doing this and minding his business or, yeah, he might have been doing this, but at the same time, do they need to shoot him to get him to, you know, comply or, you know, not be a threat? So Mm -hmm. him having to reinstate, like, you know, if you don't, if they don't know you're special, they'll kill you. Like, I was, like, when I was watching that, I was like, oh! brought me back from the kind of weirdness of this movie. Absolutely. And I wondered what the word special meant, if it meant like privileged and wealthy, or if it also meant someone with mental disabilities and mental illnesses, because in Paul's earlier monologue, when he talks about Catcher in the Rye and he talks Mm -hmm. about schizophrenia and he talks about wanting to be, you know, that that's this whole like create, like what's the line between creativity and madness and things like that. And when he calls Weeza back on the phone, he says his last name. He's like, oh, I'm Paul Poitier Kitteridge. Like mm-hmm. almost as though he like wants to be within this family or he can't now like discern between who he originally was and who his new character and persona is and so that also made me like left me going huh what did he mean when he said special i think at least for me that i think he means that like someone cares about you like just from a personal Mm -hmm. standpoint like being black and being in certain situations in simple situations like even in a store where you're shopping and you're getting more attention because people are like, oh, keep an eye on that person. Um, It's like that is derived off of just how you're perceived, right? Versus like, hold on, wait, that person is a person and they might just Mm -hmm. be like here just browsing or looking for a gift or whatever, not shoplifting. Um, And... I think that sometimes when you're in a mindset, whether that's your own mindset or you're just programmed in some ways to look at people in that way, that you don't take a second and think like, oh, hey, that person's a person. Just like Mm -hmm. this white lady's a person. And I'm not like, hey, do you need help finding something? But I'm sweating this black person or I'm sweating this like Mexican person or something like that. So... That mm-hmm. that's what it meant to me. I didn't, but I think too. I think your point's valid too. Like I didn't connect the you know mental health schizophrenic, especially in terms of it's one thing to be a con person, but it's another thing to be a con person and not be able to be like, baby, this is a con. Like I'm not Paul Podier. <laughs> like yeah, the fact that he never like fully gave himself up and switched into a persona that wasn't Paul Poitier. That's kind of what made me go, oh, maybe there's a glimpse of mental illness somewhere in there. Yeah. Which too, I mean, even mental illness in terms of like police, like isn't really taken into consideration that much either. Mm -hmm. Like when they think that you're a threat, they're not like, oh, hey, this person's mentally unstable. Like we need to approach this differently sometimes. Sometimes they're just like, we need to get this person under control by any means necessary. So they're not answering, shoot them. 
And that's not always the answer, which is like, you know, the result of like recently Black Lives Matter and people being like, we need to defund the police to re-divert funds towards people who understand mental health and is able to address people who have those issues in a way that will de-escalate versus like just shoot them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's what I thought of that. Um, another quote that I liked, what, <laughs> that was like, oh, me too, girl, um, that's a little lighter, was, I am a collage of unaccounted for brushstrokes. I'm all random. <laughs> mm. And I was like, girl, I'm random too. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so those were moments in the movie that I was like, yes. Like, or like, oh, wow. This is deep. Any other notes about the plot or characters or... Oh, I have a line of um, after Paul makes Weeza and Flan and Jeffrey like a dinner from scratch because they missed their dinner reservations mm-hmm. once Paul came in. And he's like, oh, let me cook for you. I know my way around the kitchen. He like cooks them some kind of like fish, tuna, nice little meal with like a nice wine and all of that. Jeffrey leaves and... Flan is kind of like seeing him on his way out and it's just Weeza and Paul. And she's like, oh dear, like I'll clean up. And he's like, oh no, no, I know the help doesn't come until like Tuesday. So you're going to be collecting like bugs or whatever until then. Which basically means to say like, if no one picked up those fucking plates, they would have just been sitting there for several days, which is also so fucking mind boggling. But anyways, he's like, no, 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 it's fine. Like I will, he's like, I'll wash, you watch. I get a thrill out of being looked at. And he kind of yeah. like yanks the salad bowl from Louise's <laughs> hands and kind of has this like little smirk. And I was like, Ooh, you little flirt. <laughs> I loved that. Yeah. Which I think plays into the point of him, like him being in like her dreams and him calling her. They have this connection. They had a very interesting connection. Yeah. And like when he was being dressed for his wounds, she's obviously just like, looking at him when he gets when he takes off his shirt and stuff and he just kind of yeah which is like still a very young gangly kind of will smith not a, yeah. like not a i am legend will smith or a bad boys to like chiseled will smith another part that i thought was interesting that we haven't really talked about because it's not too central but was like heather graham's character and her boyfriend oh yeah being duped by paul which at that point he changes his story to that Flan is his dad and is mm-hmm. disowning him as his like half breed child and he's trying to get money from him and all this stuff and so he winds up staying with them and then eventually he winds up kind of I guess charming his way into sleeping with the boyfriend yeah and these are like very like midwest kids who moved to new york trying from to... utah they're yeah. kind of like yeah <laughs> not even midwest but yeah utah kids who are very green in new york and trying very to hippie. Like, make their way in new york and he kind of takes advantage of them and takes their money and stays with them and all this stuff and i think that's another layer to his con that like you see that you know he knows what he's doing yeah but also like i feel like he knows no means to an end either like he has to keep it up he can't drop any it's like he's juggling he can't drop a ball 
again goes back to that method acting like not being able to lose the persona <laughs> yeah and i feel like it's the very kind of like fish out of water experience of like being in a big city and like well didn't we come here to like experience experiment yeah. yeah and it's just like yeah but at the same time like you slept with him and gave him our money. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's one thing for you to be like, hey, I had this experience sexually. It's another thing for you to be like, I had this experience and I gave him our savings. Like, no, that's mm -hmm. those two don't wash each other out. Do you think that this, well, we didn't talk about the trailer. What did you think of the trailer? I thought it was pretty straightforward. Like, See, I thought the trailer was a little misleading. I feel like if you didn't know, if you weren't familiar with the play, that you'd be like, what's this? But I feel like people who might be familiar with the play would be like, I know what I'm getting myself into. But after watching the movie and then going back and watching the trailer again, yes, it makes sense. But I feel like if you didn't know what the movie was going to be about that you might be a little confused i mean yes i agree because i for once watched the trailer before i watched the movie and i was like oh this should be interesting and like watching the movie i was like this is interesting and also like very confusing and i don't know what i watched and i don't know what it means or mm -hmm. like what 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 are we trying to say with this movie but um i do think in terms of like giving away the plot or like you know what you feel like you're in for for a movie i feel like it's pretty like straightforward of like oh like do you think this movie would hold its own in 2022 i don't know i don't think so i think your point in the beginning of like this movie dates itself in a lot of ways um but i don't think that in modern times, see, okay, story-wise, people get catfished and conned all the fucking time. And it, it still even bothers or blows my mind when I know that, like, MTV's Catfish is still a fucking show and that people still get duped after seeing and knowing that that happens to other people. Yeah. Which goes into, like, later years of the seasons, a lot of people, like, were doing it for the fame because they knew that they were going to be on MTV and it's the exposure of it. So I don't want to say that, like, con artistry is a lost art because clearly it still happens. Tindler Swindler, baby, we just, we just name-dropped that. Inventing Anna. Inventing Anna, yeah, it still happens and is still possible even with all of our modern adaptations. Um, but I feel like this movie very can classically live and stay in the 90s. I don't know if a movie in this nature can be remade in these modern times. See, I think it can. Okay. And I do think it dates itself. Um, but I do think it's adaptable to modern times. I just think, like, you obviously have to do a bit more work in terms of the catfishing of it all because seeing whether Sidney Poitier has a son or not is, like, a Google away versus, like, a, true. we need to find his autobiography. <laughs> and, and the whole... He has all um, daughters, like... Yes, and before that, they had this whole montage of them calling the, like, 
public library oh. or like public pieces of information to like get a hold of Sydney or Poitier like acting agencies or something like that. Yes, like celebrity yes. agencies. Like we need to get in contact with Sydney Poitier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, but I think I think this could still happen. I mean, even when you think of inventing Anna, like this was someone who claimed to be like this rich European Harris, very involved in the art world, which aligns with this movie, very involved with well-off kids of people like mm. these, this couple who, you know, believed that she was just as wealthy as she said she was. And for somehow, you know, they didn't and i think too part of it is this that rich people a lot of the times i feel like they don't want to admit that they could be had yeah so they're like less hesitant whereas someone who has a little less or nothing will be like hold up wait this sounds too good to be true like Mm -hmm. rich people are like oh i'm not being had Mm -hmm. huh you yeah. know, in whatever way. <laughs> I don't think I portrayed that well, but... You no, know. I get it. There's, like, that level of pride to, like, yeah. actually admitting that you're at fault or that, like, you got you got duped. Yeah, which really makes me think of um, Elizabeth Holmes and the huge scandal with her and, like, the Theranos blood machine and the mm-hmm. Silicon Valley of it all because she had people like Richard Murdoch and these huge really important really rich investors you know giving her money and believing in this technology and his grandson was like hey grandpa this ain't this ain't what you think it is and they was mm-hmm. like no she would never <laughs> lie to me and blah 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 and it was and he passed away before you know now she's gone to trial and been found guilty but he passed away before that but you know where you're just super in denial of just like no, I know what I know, and this is the real deal. And mm-hmm. like, and you don't want to admit that, like, hey, like, I made a dumbass mistake in believing this person. So, in some ways, I think that it could hold up in a remake. I think this version of it doesn't. I think it holds up in some ways, like politically and socioeconomically. Like the commentary is still pretty, like I think, poignant. But I think the culture has shifted a lot. So a lot of those mm-hmm. references don't quite land the same. Mm-hmm. Just like when I watch the Golden Girls and they talk about like certain people. And I'm like, I have no clue who that is. But <laughs> that's, and that must be funny. Um, and I think that that's where this kind of gets lost a little bit in 2022. But as far as like con men and cons and rich people and rich people being out of touch Mm. and ignorant i think it's still is pretty spot on okay um if this movie was remade what would you change i mean obviously the con has to be a little more well thought out the the con has has to to be like very second acty (laughs) yes where you have to create your whole like Facebook profile, LinkedIn profile, fake your way into Harvard um, to have your like fake record show up on and 
you know, have your cell phones be automatically directed to like your friend's phones who can Yeah. pick up and be like, yes, I am this like letter of recommendation or like I am the dean of this college. Um, totally. Yeah. The, the technology wise would have to be a lot more on par, but, um, and the like bourgeoisie of it, maybe it's not so much like art and old money, but it's this new money and new wave of like, um, tech, yeah, um, new uh, startup companies, right? Like Yeah. big companies go viral and like someone, you know, fucks over all of the CEOs of the of each company, right? Or like takes a little piece or ends up making out like a bandit because they have like stocks in those companies and then they pull the stocks right before the companies tank or whatever. You know, and we've seen... We've talked about Ocean's Eleven and that kind of franchise. Like, that's a con artist movie. Yeah. And it's told in a different way. But Parker. Parker, you could, I, I could see it being told like that where there's maybe a little bit more, like, mischievousness um, and that it doesn't necessarily feel or read so much like a play. I'd like to, if there, if this was to be, reimagined in modern times i would like to see this feel more like a movie Yeah, I think, like, in the Ocean's Eleven of it all, like, you get more of the con side of it, like, where you get more of Paul, like, practicing and working out, like, you know, his story and practicing, like, his isms and, you know, things that he needs to know to be able to talk to these people. And even getting to see him con other people, because he conned multiple people. It wasn't just this particular couple. And seeing him kind of in a montage of, like, saying the same shit to different people and it working, Mm you hmm know, adds to the, like, oh, shit, like, he did his research of it all. Um, obviously, the con has to be tighter technology-wise. Um, I think it also has to be different. Kind of like Tindler Swindler, you can't be, like, some famous person's kid. no Like, you yeah would have your to be, like, circumstances some... have to be Yeah, different you have to be some obscure, like, tech person's kid or oil tycoon's kid or something like that. Someone maybe foreign, something that these people don't automatically know of, but will be like, oh, I've heard of that. Or... what about like a swindler story not so much with elder people but like trust fund babies where like they don't know much about Oh, but yeah, they're that'd be more like inventing Anna, yeah. Yeah, 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 where they're taking advantage more of people Of their the kids, own age, yeah. of the kids, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's, like, more... I don't think that's more doable, but, like, I think that's more of now, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I think to know the generation before you and trying to, like, bait them into stuff, you, like, really have to do, like, your due diligence with that Mm. versus... your own generation and be like, I know what we think's impressive. <laughs> like, um, so I think, I think it would be really interesting to see this remade. I know that it's gone back to play format in some regards in not too long ago, recent history. I don't know about current, but like it's been revived, 
but it would be interesting to see it like revived in film and for modern day um but yeah and on that note do you have a movie cocktail spread for this Kinda. I feel like it's an easy one. I feel like for me it's going to be a really, like, bougie champagne and caviar kind of situation. (laughs) Or, like, a fancy fish dish. Like, whatever uh, Paul had prepared for them. I forget exactly what it is because they were just, like, listing ingredients that were in their cabinet. But I feel like tuna was, like, something (laughs) that was incorporated in there. Yeah, I think it's very bougie Upper East Side, like beef bourguignon or like they were talking. (laughs) Yes, they were talking about some expensive like ravioli that was like twenty dollars a little piece of, (laughs) (laughs) which is like what the fuck. (laughs) Yeah, and then um, I will top your champagne with like a really bougie fine wine or something Mm -hmm. because you know Mm -hmm. Upper East Side people like. Are very much probably like they have their own personal sommeliers or a mm-hmm. wine collection of some mm-hmm. sort, which along with their art collection is like an investment. And like, mm-hmm. oh, we just got this '92 Chateau, like, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's vintage. It's so good. Um, something of those lines. So yeah, nothing too, too far out or complicated. Any final, final, final thoughts? I'm glad this was our third film because (laughs) if it was later on, I might have been a little bit more confused as Will starts to really establish himself. But I feel like this was a great experimental film in his early years. And I know that this isn't the last time that we'll talk about this. I have a feeling that this is going to be something that we refer to throughout the season. Yeah. I don't know why, but I just, I don't know. I just have a feeling. I think when it comes to, like, his more serious roles and when we get to, like, Oscar contender roles, I definitely see us coming back to this and being like, wow, look how he built upon that foundation. But, like, Hmm. looking at his uh, career right now, after this, we're talking about Bad Boys. I know! It's such a change. Yes. Which I'm super excited about. I love that movie. So, but, yeah, like... You know, I think this will be a movie that will kind of be in our back pockets in a sense, kind of like the U-turns and the even like my families of J-Lo, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, she had these nuggets of like serious moments that get disregarded in her later, more commercial successes. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of true of Will, where like, He has this moment of, you know, really serious, real decent dialogue, standout cast. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, he's the Fresh Prince. Then he does movies like Bad Boys and, you know, Independence Day and Men in Black. And so you forget about like, oh, shit, he kind of went there for a moment and then he kind of went the other way and then came back later. Yes, yes very interesting so i think six degrees from kevin bacon and will smith (laughs) (laughs) all right everybody so thank you for listening to this week's episode and to the people who've stuck with us so far please come back for another episode of the safeway select version of 
inside the actor studio. <laughs> um, <laughs> and seriously, if you like us enough to stick around, take another deep dive down this IMDb rabbit hole as we discuss Will Smith's early music presence in the late 80s and early 90s, including albums Rock the House and Code Red. Well, you know, if you've got nothing better else to do, go figure out a theme to watch a bunch of movies you've never seen. I'm your host, Simone, and please subscribe to this blessed mess if you're into it, and leave us a like, please, or rate, review, and subscribe. And I'm your host, Bria, and it would be awesome for you to wipe off those buttery popcorn fingers and give us a review. Follow us at Roll Call Pod, that is R-O-L-E-C-A-L-L-P-O-D, on Instagram, TikTok, and my favorite, Twitter, because the Twitter streets are always calling me. And this has been another episode of uh, Roll Call! <laughs> Keeping that in. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's too tight together <laughs> to cut out. And on that note, we out. Bye.